Let's get right to it. Let's open up God's word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed the reading and the preaching, particularly of your word. We pray this morning that you would move in our hearts by your spirit, that you would stir up our minds and our hands to affections for you, to a knowledge of you, and to work out that knowledge. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would care for us this morning, where we are hurt, that you would mend us, where we are hard-hearted, that you would soften us. We pray that you would work among us by your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's an appropriate time to read this passage, I think. Firstly, because of this whole virus outbreak, it reminds us of the great needs that are in our world. It reminds us often that things come up, that diseases happen, that life circumstances happen, that we can't control, that we feel overpowered by, that we feel maybe small in comparison to it. It reminds us of the need that we have, both for God and for the church, to work and care for us. None of us comes here without needing the rest of us. Right? There's no pastor in any church, there's no leader in any church that doesn't need the church just as much as anyone else inside of it. We come to the church in need, not even only of each other, but of God to minister to us through his body. It's appropriate also because of the list of things that James just read that we pray for each week. Right? We all have people that we've been praying for maybe for years. We have situations that seem impossible that we don't know how we're going to get out of. And we remember the great need that we have. We remember how much we rely on God. And I think particularly this is an appropriate sermon, this is an appropriate text to preach because we are in the middle of Lent, right? We're in the third Sunday of Lent. And Lent is a time that we think about Jesus's obedience and we think about his suffering. Right? Lent is 40 days long in commemoration of those 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted, going without food, fasting, being tempted by the devil. And so as we contemplate Jesus' faithfulness, as we contemplate his suffering, it's fortunate that we're studying the book of Acts. 
right? Throughout the centuries, Christians have come up with a whole lot of different ways of keeping the season of Lent. Some people keep the traditional fasting regimens, either traditionally and not eat from sunup to sundown, or in maybe more modern guises, right, I'm going to give up coffee, or I'm going to give up chocolate, or whatever it may be. And there are good things about those. I'm not diminishing those in any way. Those can be really helpful things. Some people in some churches have special weekly Lent services. Some of them do special Lent outreach projects. And yet I think the most important thing during the season of Lent is that we not try to invent ways for ourselves to remember Jesus' obedience, remember Jesus' suffering, but that we look and say, what did it mean to those original apostles who saw Jesus' obedience, who saw Jesus' suffering, and who lived, and who were a church, who led the church directly out of that knowledge, directly out of that vision of Jesus caring for the poor, and out of Jesus caring for the sick and the needy and the outcasts, who saw Jesus washing feet, who saw Jesus counting himself among the least and the lowly. How did the apostles take that and be a church and care for the church in light of it? How did they look at the way that Jesus, in some ways, gave up his glory, right? He, he came to earth a servant, humble, in a manger, and he, he came to, to care for us. How did the church respond to that? Now, the problem that arose in Acts 6 is a surprisingly relevant one. The modern church often thinks that we invented, well, either racism or racial reconciliation. And yet we see that this is something that has plagued the church and been a work of the church since the very beginning. Now, in Acts 6, it's not a division that's based on ethnicity, particularly. They were all Jewish by descent. And yet there was a division among them, depending on where they were from, depending on their locality. A division between Jews who lived in Israel and Jews who lived in Greece. And you can understand why that division might have come about, right? There were many important differences between the two of them. They had a different language, right? The Greek Jews would have primarily spoken Greek. I think about my family is from, at least one half of it, comes largely from Switzerland, right? We can trace our lineage back. Maybe some of you have done those tests and kind of traced back into your family. We come from actually one particular house, the Zwicky house in Switzerland, and we can kind of find pictures of it. It's still standing. It's kind of cool. And then I think if I were to go to Switzerland, I would still be a foreigner, largely because I don't speak the language. I can't converse with them. I would come to them and they would have to change languages to converse with me. And if I came to them speaking the way I do, looking maybe the way I do, dressing the way I do, acting the way I do, they would say, no, you are an American. You have acclimated in so many ways to that culture that we have a hard time seeing you as the same as us, even if you are ethnically connected to us. And that language barrier actually went a step further for the Greek Jews, because they used a different translation of the scriptures. Right? And there were some major debates, there were some major issues with that. Does it change the nature of the scriptures to, to put them into Greek? Does it 
maybe dilute them? Does it kind of break up the purity of, of Scripture to put it in a different language? There were some of these conflicts going on. They used what was called the Septuagint, right? as a Greek translation, and it, it was not exactly the same. You can go back, we still have the Septuagint, we can still use it for study, and there are things that are actually a little bit different in it. And so there were these very understandable divisions that came into the church based on where you were from. You go back beyond that as well, and you see Jews, for their whole existence, had this tendency, had this history of division. Right? You can think of only two kings into the Jewish state. They broke into two different peoples. Right? There's the northern kingdom, there's the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. You can think later on of Jews and Samaritans that we read about in the Gospels. Ethnically descended from the same groups, but separated by, by geography, by belief in some cases. You think about all of the different groups who sprung out of Judaism, even in Jerusalem. You had the Essenes, the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the clean, the unclean. You had all of these ways of dividing, all of these ways of saying, you are different from us. And so throughout the New Testament, the apostles are constantly having to remind the fledgling churches in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Of course, that's Paul writing a little while after the events of Acts 6, but still, constantly, they're having to face that battle. This is something that will always be a struggle for the church because it's a sin problem that we all have. We all have that issue of us versus them, of wanting to define ourselves as superior. To define ourselves as saying, at least we're not that group. To define ourselves as something other than the church of God. And as we look at others, maybe who are even in the church, we can have that tendency to say, there is a division between me and you that is more important than the unity that we have in Christ. But when the apostles were informed that the Greek widows were being neglected, they recognized this was out of step. This was against the gospel. This was not a minor issue. This was a gospel issue. And we're called to do the same thing. The gospel doesn't erase differences. It doesn't homogenize the church. It doesn't mean that we are all the same person, that we are all trying to act exactly the same, that we're all fulfilling the same role even in the church. But it tells us that the most important thing about who we are is that we are in Christ. It tells us that we have a real unity despite apparent disunity. It tells us that we are really able to love one another. and We are really called to love one another even if someone looks different, even if somebody acts different, because we are in Christ. This is something that we actually have to pray for the ability to do. There may be some of you in here saying, I'm not racist. I don't you know, put people in categories like that. I love people. That's all behind us. And there are real senses in which God has worked in his church to make that true. 
I want to recognize that God throughout history has broken down over and over barriers and divisions. He has cared for his church. He has brought us into unity again and again in meaningful ways. And yet we have to recognize that it's not just a societal problem. It is not just a cultural problem. It is a sin problem. And to challenge ourselves and to pray for ourselves to say, God, would you help me to love my neighbor as myself? Would you help me to see those who are different, to care for them in that same way? Now, the Apostle's solution to this issue displays probably a lot more wisdom than the modern church tends to show. The problem threatened the gospel from two angles. On the one hand, if the church's actions contradicted its message, the gospel would be called into question. It's one of the basic rules of human communication. Actions speak louder than words. How many times have we all been told that? We can all think of, well, of situations close to home that, that actions have spoken louder than words, that someone's proclamation of the gospel has been contradicted by the actions that they have shown. And we can all, if we're honest, look into our own lives and say there have been times that my actions have not displayed the fullness and the clarity and the love of the gospel that I've spoken to others and that I've professed to believe. And on the other hand, if the church turns its efforts to more perfectly caring for its members at the expense of preaching the gospel, then it would have simply been a social movement. We've all, again, seen situations in which this has tragically been the case, where the church has given up or diminished its role of preaching truth, of sharing the good news, to try on a human level to do something that is good, to diminish suffering, to care for the lost and the least. It may benefit society, it may be good for people, it may improve the quality of people's lives, and yet a church without the gospel, a church without preaching the gospel at the center of it is something that does not have the power to save. It may have the power to help, but ultimately it has no power to save. So how do you avoid both of these problems? On the one hand, a gospel that is not lived out, and on the other hand, a life that is not preaching the gospel. How do you avoid them? We've all seen churches that fall to one side or the other, We've all seen the issues and the, the pain that that brings. What we need to learn from the apostles is that the church does not get to make an either-or decision. The church doesn't get to choose preaching or living. You choose both, or you choose a weak and a powerless gospel. You preach the gospel and you live out the gospel, or you will do neither. So in response to this crisis, the apostles made a very practical, very wise decision. Verse 2 says, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now that phrase, to serve tables, in Greek would be diakonein trapezais. And from that word diakonein, to serve, we later get the noun form diakonas, 
uh, Dr. Fowler can critique my pronunciations later. Um, we get that word diakonos, deacon. The reason for this office is not that the apostles or the elders were above these tasks, right? The reason that we have deacons is not that the elders grew too important, grew too kind of high in the church to be subject to these low and menial and servant-like tasks. It doesn't matter how lofty a position someone reaches in the church. None of us are above service to the poor and the needy among us. And Jesus himself obviously shows this. How much of Jesus' time was spent with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, healing the needy, washing feet. Jesus told us that if anyone wants to be greatest in the kingdom of God, that person must become a servant. I was fortunate during seminary to take a few classes with Sinclair Ferguson, one of the great living uh, reformed theologians. A lot of his best comments, the things that I take from his classes the most, were his pastoral stories, the things that he would tell us about ministering in the very north of Scotland. He said he had the, the northernmost church in Scotland out in the, the middle of nowhere for a while. One of the things that he said was that often when people came to his church, particularly in the Reformed tradition where learning and theology is given such prominence, that they would come and they would say, hey, I've done a lot of study, I've done a lot of learning, how about I teach your adult Bible class or I teach your adult Sunday school? And he would say, oh, I'm very thankful for your, for your suggestion, for your willingness to serve. It turns out that our adult Sunday school is actually taken care of, but there is a wonderful opportunity for you in the first grade class. <laughs> and he says frequently, those people would not be so excited about that opportunity. They would, they would think maybe that opportunity was beneath them. Right? Out of all my learning, out of all my preparation, to go and to teach first graders or to care for the nursery, to take out garbage, whatever it may be. And yet the reason the apostles called for the election of deacons was that they knew the importance, not only on a practical level, but on a theological, on a spiritual level, the importance of those tasks, and the importance of having godly spiritual men for those tasks. They knew the importance, on the other hand, of preaching the word, the importance of the gospel, and they were absolutely unwilling that anything should compromise that. And that's helpful for us to remember. It's also helpful for us to think about the context in which they say that. Right? In their context, it's very different from our Dallas idea of being a pastor. We can all kind of look around and say, in Dallas, if you're a pastor, you're generally well thought of. Right? There may be some people who complain about your views, who don't take it quite so well. But we are welcome not only in the social spaces, we are welcome in political spaces. We have a great deal of respect given to us. It's not a job that is likely to get you killed in Dallas. And yet, if you look at the apostles' situation, I want you to hear what they're saying in its fullness. Because they're not saying those tasks are too low, are too 
unimportant for us to do. They're saying, we have a task. That's going to get us thrown in prison over and over. We have a task that's going to get us flogged and beaten and laughed at. And it's important that we not give it up. As we, as the elders of this church, as its pastors, as its leaders, contemplate what it means to be in leadership, this is one of the things that, that we have to impress ourselves on is, do I want to be a leader for the respect, for the honor of it? Do I want it for the social standing? Or do I want to get into those hard, messy, difficult situations where people are not saying great things about me, where people are angry at me as I try to help them. I think you have some good leaders. Right? I have had the pleasure of being around, among these men as they have cared for you, and I think that they portray that. And as we, as the church, strive to grow, as we strive to be the body of Christ, it's something that we all have to push ourselves on, is what, what am I trying to do in the midst of this body? Am I striving for people to like me, to respect me? Or am I trying to show the love of Jesus? Am I counting myself least? Am I counting myself a servant? Because our sinful natures, if we're all honest, they're going to rebel against that. Not once, not even a few times, but day after day is something that we put to death. It's something that as we come into the church, we all have things where we're offended, where we say, I want it that way, not this way. I want this thing to be more important. I want it to be in my image. I want it to honor me. And yet we say, I'm a servant. I come here to serve the church, to put myself least. This is what we're called to. This is what the apostles showed themselves to do. So, as we consider the role of deacon, we see, first of all, the apostles are not claiming for themselves the easy job. They're not claiming the comfortable, the honorable job, but a dangerous job of preaching a gospel that is truly good news, but that's going to provoke hate and anger bitterness. And we see also that the role of deacons is far more spiritual than we may have expected. We have a few deacons in this room right now, and I can express my thanks to you. Again, I've had the opportunity to spend some time among you all and see your love for the congregation. And one of the things that we want to affirm as we hopefully are, are raising up more deacons, as we are growing as a church is that the role is more spiritual than we may have given it credit for. I want you to look at the qualifications of the apostle, of the uh, deacons that the apostles listed. They say we need men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now these are men who are being sent to care for widows, to give you know, distributions to people who need them. These are people who are going to do servant work. And yet they say, we don't just need practical men, we need gospel-centered men. We may need men filled with the spirit, men of wisdom. They didn't give them a handbook, right? They laid hands on them and prayed for them. You might ask the question, why take up the time of such mature Christians for something as simple as waiting tables? 
Shouldn't the most mature Christians be doing something more important? Shouldn't they be doing something more dignified, more honorable? It's a relevant question for today that, that we can ask as our church is continuing to grow. What are our deacons here for? Why do we have them, right? What is their role? I think the answer, what is shown in this text is that what we believe in our heads, what we feel in our hearts is ultimately connected to what we do with our hands. To put it another way, we know that the way we act and the way that we feel and the way that we think are all connected. I want you to think of Stephen, one of the first seven deacons chosen, who gives one of the greatest speeches in the New Testament while staring down the people who are about to stone him to death. Someone who can pull together all of redemptive history, all Genesis to the end times. He can put it all together and say, this is how it relates to Christ. This is how Christ is at the center of it all. He preaches one of the great sermons that's ever been preached, and he is a deacon. He is someone chosen to serve tables. The knowledge that led him to care for widows and orphans is the same knowledge that fills him in that sermon. And this should challenge us to ask the question, does my understanding of the gospel and of scripture and of theology, does it translate in the same way that Stephen's did? Does my knowledge of these things translate to service? Does it translate to love and care for my brothers and sisters in the church? Does it lead me to reach out? Or does it act more like a barrier to showing love? And if it doesn't lead me to love, if it doesn't lead me to service, to counting myself as servants, to humility, then I think we have to ask the question of why not? What's getting in the way? What is holding our theology that we as a church do pretty well? What is holding that back from flowing more directly, more completely into love, into service, into care for one another. When the seven deacons had been chosen, the apostles laid hands on them and they prayed for them. Now it's important that we realize they weren't giving them the Holy Spirit. Right? They already had the Holy Spirit. They were Christians. They were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Rather, the apostles were blessing them praying for them and giving them authority, what we would call ordaining them. And finally, we're told that God's word continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And the last thing that we're told is particularly incredible, that many of the priests came to faith in Christ. Right? The same priests who a chapter ago were putting... Peter and the apostles in prison, who are laughing at them, who are scoffing at the message. A great many, not one or two, but a great many of them were coming to faith. What caused this sudden and incredible change? It's a very specific thing to add at the end of this section. A great many of the priests came to faith. And it's added without explanation. It leads us to wonder what it was about this, what it was about the choosing of the deacons that led many of the priests to become obedient to Christ. And this is important. There are some people who will be won to the faith by well-constructed arguments, or by loving friendships, or by many other things. 
But here we see that it was specifically the way the church cared for the needy that seems to have convinced many of the priests. Even though they had likely heard the apostles' arguments, even though they had likely heard them preaching, heard the reports of the risen Christ, it seems to have been this particular issue for that particular group of people that convinced them, that drew them near to obedience to Christ. I want to read for you a passage from Psalm 68. It says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. You can imagine the priests having studied these texts, having sung these psalms, seeing the people who really are committed to loving and to caring for the widows, who really see this situation come up and don't say, that's beneath me, but who say, I will really take this seriously. I will care. I will see that there are places and systems and people set up to care for these widows, to care for our orphans, to care for those who are the most in need. You can imagine the priests seeing that, following hundreds of years of indictment for not doing so and saying, there's something about these Christians that really lives out who I know my God to be. Who I know God has said that he is. These Christians are living in such a way that it portrays a picture of that God to me. This is something today that, that we have to ask. Does our way of living, does our care for the needy, does our care for the widows and the orphans, maybe literally, maybe not literally, does that show, does that tell people that, that we really believe what God has said of us? Do we, does the, do we show that, that we really are following the God, the Savior, who we proclaim to follow? Ultimately, of course, we fall short of perfectly representing Jesus. We don't love others as fully as Jesus loved them. We, in fact, find that idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves, as greatly as ourselves, as much as ourselves. We find that impossible. We find it baffling. We strive to love like Jesus loved. And yet, ultimately, we can only even try to do so because Christ already lived that life of perfect love. He already died for our sins. He already redeemed our brokenness and the fact that we would do it imperfectly. And yet the fact should inspire us not to give up, but to have hope of really starting to live like Jesus lived as the apostles started to show the love that Jesus had showed. The New Testament takes seriously the question of how we treat each other and how we treat those outside the faith. It won't allow us to hide behind our preaching so that we don't have to engage in the messy business of living out the gospel, and it won't allow us to hide behind doing good things so that we don't have to do the difficult reality of preaching a gospel that is, in many ways, contrary to what we want. We have to ask, which one do I tend towards? Which one am I tempted to do? Or am I tempted to preach and to use that as a way to avoid living out the gospel? Or am I tempted to love others and to use that as a barrier against telling them the good news? Is the truth is that Christ has redeemed our minds and he's also redeemed our hands. And he is renewing our minds at the same time that he is renewing our hands. And we as a church are being renewed in both of those ways.
We're being renewed in the truth and we are being renewed in our care and our love in the way that we live out the image of Christ.